0: Good morning once again. Um, I don't think I introduced myself earlier. My name is Justin. Uh, If we've not met, I am the next generation director here at CCC, CCC, which means that I just lead the team of young people. And if you've seen me up here before, it's usually a safe bet that when I'm here on this stage, I'm going to talk about young people. Um, So if that's what you thought, you were correct. Uh, But before we get into that, uh, I have a question who in here has got started on their New Year's resolution? Not a single hand. Oh, one hand. Sorry, sorry. One hand. It, that's it. Okay, we got a couple. All right, who made a New Year's resolution this year? Okay. Man, these are these are rough numbers. Who thinks the whole idea of New Year's resolutions is kind of dumb? Okay. There is merit to that. Uh I so uh, I want to know if you're like me. Uh, This year, I said once again, you know, I'm going to take a little better care of myself this year. Anybody else do that again this year? You know, I need to eat a little less, move a little more. One of the things I said I was going to do is I'm going to start playing basketball on Mondays. We play here Mondays. If you want to come play basketball, we're here on Mondays, 7 o'clock. But the first week I came, it was like three weeks ago, the very first week I came, it was maybe somewhere between four and six minutes into the first game we were playing. I'm super athletic, so I was cutting really hard, and I heard this weird pop sound, or felt this weird pop. It was in my calf, and boom. I'm I'm limping. I'm really, it's like a waddle, walk thing that I did, and there were only eight of us, so I couldn't leave because three on four is like the worst. So I had to stay and like up and down the court the whole time, and then for the next couple days, I limped even, which, uh, If you've ever limped like that, you ever done the thing where you, like, hurt your leg and you limp, so then you hurt your back because you're limping? Anybody ever been there? So then, like, after I hurt my calf, I've been standing up like I'm, like, 107 years old with the... And I swear, Beth didn't tell that backstory first service. I think she heard me tell about my back, and then she's like, oh, I want to get on that backstory train. But I did this thing where I had great intentions, right, great intentions of, of... uh, of moving more, being a little more active, but what actually happened was I hurt my calf and I hurt my back, and I just have wanted to not move at all since then. Like yesterday was the first day I could stand up out of a chair like all by myself without making an audible sound. Right? Like the first day I wasn't like. Uh, when you, anybody stand up like that? You're making me feel like it's just me. I know that to not be true. But I I think we've all been there, right? You ever been somewhere where you like, you have great intentions with something, but instead of making the problem better, you just make it worse? Another way of describing this, have you ever tried to do plumbing on your own at home? No? Like you try to fix a problem and and like it was leaking a little bit, so I fixed it and now I have to call somebody because it's like leaking a lot, right? I, I learned this week that there's actually a term for that. Maybe you've heard of this. It's called the Cobra Effect. Who's heard of the Cobra Effect in here? Okay, one of us. Uh, I hadn't heard of it either. The Cobra Effect is is this, it came from a scenario that happened in India. And when, when the British were colonizing India, they got there and they realized that there were a whole bunch of these snakes that they didn't really care for. Because they were the poisonous snakes, like the kind where if they bite you, then you die, cobras. So what they decided to do was they were going to put a bounty out on snakes, right? You give us a dead snake, we'll give you money in exchange for that. So people started, you know, going finding snakes. But then they realized that if you can go find a couple snakes and get money for that, right, you get a little money for that. If you go find a couple snakes and then start breeding them in your yard, then you can get a lot more money for that. So people were starting these like snake farms where they were breeding poisonous cobras to fix the cobra problem, right? And the people in charge of this system kind of caught wind of that. They realized this is, we're like, we're getting more snakes. We're not getting less. So they, they, they killed the program. And what people did was instead of killing those snakes, they just opened the gates and let nature take its course. So at the end of this snake eradication program, they had way more poisonous snakes than what they started with. They, they had great intentions, right? But what, but what came after that, what, like the outcome didn't really match the intentions. And, and when it's important, when it's something important to us, we, we know that our intentions don't really count for that much. When it's something important to us, the outcome is really what's important, right? I, I, if, if you have like a middle schooler kid, uh, anybody have a middle schooler in here? Have you ever heard the phrase, I didn't mean to? I'm so glad you didn't mean to, but you did, right? You're not getting in trouble right now for what you meant to do. You're getting in trouble for what you did. And I think this is something that we've all, we all know what this is like. Like, I didn't intend for that to happen. That's just how it went out. And I want to talk about this idea in a specific area for us today. A specific area. And the area I want to talk about it is young people. Because as a church, I think we've had great intentions when it comes to our younger generations. But the truth is, our outcomes haven't really matched those intentions. Like, even though we've had the the best intentions with our young people, what we're actually seeing, the the product of our actions, is actually not that great. I've been up here and I've said this statistic more than once. Did you know that by the time a, a student who is involved in their church leaves high school, and they move on to the next stage of life. Do you know how many of them are going to walk away from their faith statistically? 70 to 80 percent. Let me say that again. By the time a student who is involved in their church, not just a student, right? A student who is actually active, engaged, involved in their church. By the time they leave high school and move on to the next thing, 70 to 80 percent of them are going to walk away from their faith and this is heartbreaking to me this this should bother all of us i think because as as like leaders in the church we're not accountable to our intentions right we're not accountable for what we intended to happen we're accountable what is actually happening? And that's what I want to talk about today because I think that we can do something about this. I, I don't think that the, the, the way forward is just like this, this feeling of dismay that I get whenever I, I read that statistic. I think that we can actually do something about this and I want to talk about it today. And the thing that I think we should do is not something new. In fact, a long time ago, I think the church was designed to work in a certain way. If you have your Bibles, we open them to 1 Peter with me. We're going to be in 1 Peter 5. We're going to read the first five verses. And what we see in these five verses, I think, is a picture painted of what it looks like for the church to do well in this area. I think Peter paints us a picture of what it would look like for our church to knock this out of the park. Here's what it says. It says, so I exhort the elders among you. Elders, not meaning like the elder board, like we have a, elder, uh, a board of elders here at the church who kind of oversee everything. Uh, not those elders, like elders as in, so I, I'm, I'm calling you guys out. If you're older than uh, like someone you know who is trying to follow Jesus, that's you. All right, now who is in this category? If you are older than a person, right now, if you are older than a person you know is trying to follow Jesus, will you just raise your hand for me? I'm in this right? Okay, I didn't see everyone raise their hand, and I'm used to that, because I work with middle schoolers who are way too cool to do anything that I want to do. So we're going to try that again, and please, uh, even if you're cooler than me, will you participate? If you are older than a person who is trying to follow Jesus, will you raise your hand? Yeah, it's all of us, and I think that's who Peter's talking to. Let's keep going. So I exhort the elders among you. As a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed. Shepherd the flock of God that is among you. Exercising oversight. Shepherd the flock. Those, those people, like he's addressing, if, if you're older than people who are trying to follow Jesus, it is your responsibility to help shepherd them. Not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. Likewise, you who are younger, be subject to the elders. And then he says, "Clothe yourselves all of you, not just the young people, right? We usually apply that to the young people. Clothe yourselves all of you with humility toward one another. For God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble." I think the picture that that Peter paints here is one where when we're climbing this ladder toward Jesus, when we're walking down this road toward Jesus, we're not just laser-focused ahead of us, right? In one sense, we are I'm kind of mixing metaphors. We're always looking to Jesus, but we're not neglecting the people behind us. I think the church was meant to be a, a whole church body, a culture of people who are not just looking out for themselves, but looking out for the guys behind them as well. And if it's true that that's what the church is supposed to look like, if, if it's true that we are called as people who are older than other people trying to follow Jesus, if it's true that that's what we're called to do, I think we're going to be held accountable to that. I think age and experience and leadership and this call to be shepherds, I think those are all a stewardship, and I think we're going to be held accountable for those things. And if it's true that 70 to 80 percent of young people are walking away from their faith, it doesn't really matter what our intentions have been. We're not doing a great job. And the, the honest truth, I think most of what's happened is not that people don't care. I, I don't think it's that we, we, we've just totally written them off like they're not going to get this, or just leaving them out on their own. I don't think that's what happened, has happened at all. In fact, I, was, I had lunch with somebody about a week ago. He's about twice my age. And the thing he told me, he said, The most important thing in my life, bar none, the most important thing that I can think of in my life is that my kids will have a relationship with their Heavenly Father. I think we care about this to a a great degree. I think this is important to all of us. I think we've had the greatest intentions, but I think that we're trying to hit a moving target. I think that the world is changing so fast that some of the assumptions that were true yesterday aren't really true today they're they're not true anymore I think some of the methods that we've used based on those assumptions have led us down a path like we're, we're missing this moving target this isn't just a church thing I think this is happening in a lot of areas one example is the school system in America for a long time the assumption for our school system was if you work hard and you do well and you get a college degree then you're going to get a what good job right That's been the assumption. And you're better off statistically with a degree than you are without one. But I think we all have seen that having a college degree is by no means a guarantee of anything anymore. In fact, only about 27% of graduates say that they actually are using the degree that they went to school to get. And because of this assumption that we've had, we've ordered the way we've operated around this. We've equated being smart with college. We say smart people go to college. And not smart people do what? Trades, right? They, they, they labor. You go to college, so you don't have to do the trades. And that's not true at all, right? We all know somebody who could build a house without a blueprint. And it's like, that, how, how would you even start that? We've equated intelligence with college to the, the neglect of the trades. We've taken money out of our trade schools, and now we're, we're seeing some of the consequences of that one of which is there's a labor shortage in virtually every single one of the trades, right? There's, if, if you try to hire a plumber, good luck, right? They can charge you whatever they want because they are not in a shortage of work, right? There's a shortage of labor. And the second thing is, like I said earlier, only 27% of grads are using the degree that they actually went to get. In fact, we are $1.5 trillion, trillion trillion with a T. We're $1.5 trillion in debt just in the area of school loans, right? Now, the system isn't completely broken. It's not, that, it's not like this is completely uh, desolate and nobody's accomplishing anything. That's not true. But I think we all can kind of sense that this train isn't really headed somewhere great, right? This, it feels like something's not going to work out, right? The 1.5 trillion, that's never going to get paid back. At least it doesn't feel like it is, Right? We can't keep not sending people into the trades and still have plumbing indoors, right? You want to give up your indoor plumbing? I don't. right? We're going to have to adjust, right? We're going to have to adjust our methods to the world that we actually live in, not the one that our system like started in. And the same thing with the church. We're, I think we have some assumptions behind some of our methods that just aren't true anymore. And today, what I want to do is I want to, I want to address a couple of these assumptions, and I want to give us a, an alternative, or our response here at Cicero Christian Church, and then I want to say how you, I think you guys can fit in at the end. Does that work? Are we all on board for that? Let's dive in. The first assumption that I want to address is that our intrinsic need for God is apparent our intrinsic, like because we are of the nature of us being made in the image of God, that our need for God is going to be apparent. And I think the reason that some of us think that is because I I have been told many times that for many of you in this room, you were raised to believe that to be a good American also meant to be a good what? Christian. Was anybody raised that way in here? I think in the years before, it was assumed that even if you weren't in the church, you thought you should be. I think that we assumed that people who weren't going to church on Sunday mornings felt guilty about it, right? Our culture informed that in us. It was kind of bred into many people, right? It was, it was the culture around you. If you're not in church, you're guilty about not being church. I think that was true maybe before, but I know that's not true today. In fact, today, people are about as guilty for not going to church on Sundays as you are for not going to mosque, right? I don't feel any guilt over that. And I don't think anybody outside of the church is feeling guilt because of their culture for not being part of the church. In fact, it's kind of the opposite now, right? The opposite, our culture in a lot of ways is, is pouring on guilt when you are part of the church, right? You have to overcome that in many ways Today. So, here at Cicero Christian Church, we understand that culture is not going uh, to put into us this need for God. We're not going to get it from the culture around us. It has to come through relationships. So, our response is to say, we want to get every young person in a relationship with an adult who's not their parent, who is helping them follow Jesus. Now, the not their parent thing is important, right? And you've, you've all experienced this. There's something about being a young person that makes our parents not know anything, right? Parents, have you been on the receiving end of that? Anybody, right? There's something about having an influence outside of the family that, that can help get through a thick skull. Anybody have a teenager with a thick skull? All right, some of us do. I'll, I will admit that when I was a teenager, I also had a thick skull. It's, it's begun to soften a little bit. It's not necessarily all the way there. Um, who knows when it'll stop? But I think, I think we've all seen the power of having an influence outside of the family on the family. That's our, that's our response here at Cicero Christian Church. We believe that if we can get young people in a relationship with an adult who is not their parent, who's helping them follow Jesus, that is a huge win. And statistically, this, if we can get students in this kind of relationship... That number I talked about, that 70 to 80% walking away, it cuts that number in half. So we we gear everything from our nursery to our children's ministry to our student ministries. Everything we do is geared to have young people in relationships with adults who are not their parent. Let's move on to the second assumption. The second assumption that I think we have is that the presentation of the what without connecting the why is sufficient. As a church, I think we're pretty good with the what's, right? You guys know what I mean by what's like the, the what do I do, what do I think, right? Believe this, don't believe that, do this, don't do that. We're pretty good at those. But the next question that comes after that, we're, we're not always so good at that, right? We're good at saying don't lie. But the next question, why should I not lie? We'll answer with something like the Bible says so. And it's true that the Bible says so. And it's true that we should be able to submit to that authority, but that's just a bad answer for a question with really good answers. Imagine you are God and you're looking down on our world and you see that when people are in relationships with one another and they lie, something happens, right? It's not that we just, we don't like lies, right? When somebody lies to you, it it breaks the relationship. It does damage when somebody lies to you. And then moving forward, there's a rift in your relationship because of lying. And if you were your heavenly father and you look down on your children, you would say, hey, don't lie to one another. Not just because I'm in charge and I can make up rules, but because you're going to be better off for it. When we connect the why to the what, it helps us do what we call owning our faith. A lot of what we do is geared toward helping young people own their faith. And this is different than knowledge download. Owning your faith is different than just behavior modification, right? Because we, I think you've probably seen kids who all through high school, they were good kids, right? They had great behavior. They didn't do any of the wrong things. They said all the right things. But whenever they got to college and they experienced freedom in a new way, their behavior kind of started to change. The the things that they talked about started to change. This faith that they'd been carrying, they never actually took this, like they never moved beyond just holding someone else's faith to owning their own faith. And we believe that connecting the whys to the whats is a great way to do that. But it's harder. It's a lot harder to, to go the extra step to connect the whys, right? It takes more effort. It takes longer explanation. It takes harder conversations, right? Instead of saying, hey, you should tithe, right? You know that the idea of tithing is like insane to people outside of our church? That, that's crazy. And if you say you should tithe, they're like, why? Why would I ever want to tithe? Well, the Lord works in mysterious ways. That's not very compelling, is it? But if we said, you know, our Heavenly Father sees that if, if we're not vigilant about it, our things stop becoming things that we possess and they start to possess us. And if we're not vigilant in let, having ownership over them instead of them, us, then they're going to take control. And when we're talking about this, we're talking about generosity in a lot of ways. And one of the easiest ways to start teaching somebody about generosity is to say, maybe it's 10%, maybe it's 3%, whatever it is, start by picking a percentage of your income. And before taxes, before bills, before anything comes off the top, when you get that check direct deposited, just give it away. That's one of the ways we teach generosity. And it's not because the Lord works in mysterious ways. Jesus doesn't want us to be generous because he needs our money. Jesus wants us to be generous because he wants us to experience peace. And you can't experience peace if your money has its hands around your throat. We need to connect the what to the why, help people start to see that what, what Jesus has for us is wisdom, not just the list of rules. Let's move on to the next assumption. The last assumption for us that I have today is that youth group is the solution. I think it's easy to hear me say these things like, we should care about young people, and then hear, hear that and think, of course we care about young people. That's why we hired you. Like, we solved this problem. You're here. Solve it, right? I'm paid to be a part of the solution to this, and I definitely want to be. But here's the, here's the reality. If, if youth group was the solution, if all it took was having a student ministry, then the problem would have already been solved. We're not talking about 70 to 80% of students after high school are not Christians. We're saying 70 to 80% of the students who are in churches, who are engaged in the ministry of their local church, 70 to 80% of the people who are already on board for this faith thing are leaving their faith. And if student ministry was the answer, then it would have already been solved. But I think it takes something more along the lines of what Peter was talking about. I think it takes something more along the lines of a whole church body owning this responsibility together. All of us, no matter what stage of life we're in, no matter whether we have kids or don't, or whether our kids are growing out of the house, or whether we have grandkids, no matter what stage of life we're in, I think it takes all of us looking behind us to see who we can help forward. I talked earlier about the school system and reformation that's taking place there. One of the things we never really take seriously is the, the person who says, I don't have kids, why should I have to pay taxes that go to education? Right? I don't have kids. Why should I pay for other people's kids to go to school? The reason we do that is because we understand as a society that we're all better off when, when we raise our youth in education. It benefits all of us. I don't have to have kids to directly benefit from educating the masses. And in the same way, I don't have to have kids to benefit from a church culture that's always looking back to see who we can help forward. Think about it. Don't you wish that, think of your middle school years. How different would your middle school time have been if you had an influence outside of your house investing in you? If you didn't have to ask, does anybody care about me? Because there were people there answering that question. And I know I don't have to imagine this because I experienced it. I had parents who were very supporting and very loving, but there's something about, my, like I knew my mom had to tell me I was valuable, right? There's something about, it didn't, it didn't count when she said it to me in the same way it did when my youth pastor looked at me and told me that I was valuable. So I want to give you a couple ways that I think you can personally be involved in this. The first one is have the name of somebody in a generation behind you who you're investing in. If I had my way, I'd say have at least one person 18 or under that you're investing in and then one for each generation behind you or have five names. What, like, but we're going to start small. Just have one name of a person and a generation behind you that you're investing in. That's step one. Step two, spend time with them. We talk in our 5-2 Essentials. That's our leadership pipeline here. It comes from the fishes and loaves story and... The 5-2 the essential, the, the principle that we talk about is that intentional time equals influence. Intentional time equals influence. If you want to have influence over someone, you're going to have to spend time with them. And not just time being there, but intentional time where you're talking about things, right? Where you're having important conversations. Intentional time equals influence. And I'm sure... Uh, it, it, If you're on board for that, then I want to give you a couple or sorry. Number three. When you're spending time with him, talk about real life. Got a little ahead of myself there. When you're when you're spending time with him, it's really easy to just stay on the surface. And we can talk Christian platitudes, we can give each other Sunday school answers, right? I'm having problems. Well, just need to pray more, right? I'm having problems in my relationships. Well, you need to read your Bible more. Right? Those things are good and those things are true, but You understand the difference between platitude answers and like real help answers, right? The difference between just skimming the surface and being real with one another. If you're not sure what questions or what things to talk about, let me give you a couple examples or maybe like test questions to ask or answer. First one, what scares you? What scares you in this world? What, what, what makes you feel afraid in a way that you're, maybe surprises you or, or makes you feel uncomfortable? What makes you feel insecure when you're at work? What makes you feel insecure? What kind of things do people do that kind of like ding that insecurity button for you? What, what about following Jesus is hard for you? When you read the Bible, what, what are some things that don't always make sense? What, what are some things that don't always line up? Because when you talk about these fears and insecurities and doubts and questions, I think what you're going to find is you're not the only one who has them. I, I imagine you're going to share these in common with the most of the people that you talk with. And the last thing I have for you, if you have a person, you're spending time with him, you're talking about real life, the last thing I want to challenge you to do is be an example, set an example of doing the Word, not just hearing the Word. If we're honest, and be honest with me, I'm guilty of this. I think it's easy for us as Christians to allow knowledge about God to be a placebo for actually following Him. I'm guilty of this. I, I think sometimes we can go to a, uh, maybe a Sunday school class, a, a microchurch, have a conversation over lunch with somebody where we get really deep. Right? And we talk about really big and heady terms. But we don't let it change anything about how we live our life or follow Jesus. Knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. I think we need to be better examples of doing the word rather than just hearing the word. And like I said before, none of this is new. Right, this idea that we should be a culture looking back to help the people behind us forward—none of that is new, right? This came from Peter two thousand years ago. This was written. The methods change, but this culture that we're called to, this accountability for shepherding—I don't think this is new. And this morning, I, I know that I'm a product of this kind of culture. I know that I wouldn't be the guy I am today. I wouldn't be in the position I am today. I. A lot about my life would look very different if I didn't have the people I had pouring into me when I was younger. I can list them. Sam Wake, he was a couple years older than me. Cindy Claypool, she was about my mom's age, and she was harder on me than, like, anyone ever. And she gave me gentleman lessons, and she pulled me over to the side, and she embarrassed me in front of people all the time. But she poured into me like no one has. Adam was one of those people. He was my youth pastor in high school. Eric Rudisol, Ken Batch Elder, I can keep listing of names of people who I had to pour into me and I can tell you exactly how I am different because of each of their influence. Imagine how your life would be different if you had people pouring into you in middle school. Maybe you don't have to imagine, maybe you can point exactly to the same influence that I can. And ha- imagine how much you would appreciate it if other people did this for your kids. I think this is possible. I think that this, if we can own this as a church, if we can take this seriously and start to live out this culture, I think we can change this whole community for the better. Will you pray with me? Father, thank you so much for sending your son. When it comes to to leadership, you set the example of of being sacrificial. Sacrificial. You put the needs of other people in front of your own to the point that you were willing to die for us. And this morning, I, I ask that you will help us to take on that same persona of selflessness. Help, help us to own this responsibility collectively. Because we're all better off when we do this. Love you, and I pray these things all in Jesus' name. Amen.